0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. We're going to pick up in verse 14 and read through the end of the chapter. Genesis 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come to you once again, Father, asking for your help and your empowerment. Father, this is a full confession that without you, we will fail to understand these words and these verses. We will fail to apply them to our lives. And we will certainly be unchanged by them. But Father, we come to you that, Lord, we might understand these things, that you might be our teacher and teach them to us, that you would apply them to our hearts, make application to each one of us, Father. And Father, we pray that you will change us by these words. Your word is truly living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to divide our spirits, able to divide our soul. Oh, Father, do just that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Chapter 12, a few weeks ago, you'll recall, I didn't, my my message initially on chapter 12, I didn't know what to call it. I didn't have a title for it, so I called it a burst of gray light, uh, something to that effect. Because in chapter 12, As Abram is called by God and given these promises, it is really like a great light just bursts forth right out of the narrative. And the first, uh, really from chapters 3 to 11, are indeed uh, on the darker bent, aren't they? And that darkness actually causes the light to even look brighter. Uh, So we see a, a great burst of light if you will, at the beginning of chapter 12. But tragically, it ends in a horrible scene. Uh, You'll recall that under the pressure of a severe famine, uh, Abram takes his eyes off the Lord, doesn't he? He takes his eyes off the Lord's promises. And of course, what happens to Abram? Well, we, we know what happens to Abram because we experience the same. What do we do once our eyes are taken off the Lord? What do we do once our eyes are taken off his promises? We fix our eyes on something else, usually ourselves and our own wisdom and our own clever devices. And that's what we see Abram doing. And this leads to a horrible scene. Sarah is taken from Abram and married off to Pharaoh. Um, it really would be I, I, horrible to imagine um, the stress of that event. Uh, But God, we see, he intervened, he delivered Sarai, and they all get, they really basically get pitched out of Egypt, don't they? Imagine that, getting kicked out of Egypt. Egypt's the emblem in the Bible of worldliness and sin, and they managed to get kicked out of there. Um, There's a little bit of humor in there, I think. Um, But last week, we followed Abram and Lot as they traveled up out of Egypt into the Negev, that is, into the desert, and they're no sooner free from one problem—that is, the severe famine—and then the problem that that Abram and Sarai find themselves in down in Egypt, which I think is even a more severe problem even than the famine. They're no sooner out of those problems than they're back up in the uh, back up north, and they're in another problem. And that pretty much is the way of faith, isn't it? So as we walk through this world, we find ourselves going really from one. Struggle to the next. So uh, we learn that Abram is very, very rich. We learn that Lot also is quite wealthy, and here they are roaming around. Uh, these are these are large retinues, if you will. Uh, you know, in the next chapter, we're going to learn that that Abram is able to send three hundred eighteen men into battle. That gives us some idea of how significant his his household is. Uh, it's a large company of people. Not large in terms of an army, as we'll see next, next time, uh, Lord willing. But in terms of a household, um, that's a lot. And of course, Lot is also uh, not as wealthy as Abram, but Lot is quite wealthy as well. Now, the land simply can't support these two dwelling together. And uh, Lot's herdsmen begin to quarrel with Abrams. Abrams begin to quarrel with Lot's. And Abram very wisely nips this in the bud, doesn't he? We saw that last week. And there's a great lesson here for us, um, namely that when we face strife or friction of any kind, nip it in the bud. I mean, nip it right in the bud, um, whether it be in the family, the workplace, wherever it might be. Uh, don't let it uh, fester, and many of you over the last i don 't know how long uh, have received text messages from me or you've actually uh experienced where I called you aside, and I simply asked, "Is there any friction between us and some of you will recall that, and why do I do that is because I am constantly on guard for Friction. Most of the time when I call you aside, you, you don't even know what I'm talking about. But I want to make sure you don't know what I'm talking about. The reason I call you aside is because friction of any kind, if I sense there's any friction of any kind between any one of you, I'm going to call you aside and I'm going to say, Listen, is there anything going on? Have I offended you? Have I done something to offend you? Have I done something wrong to you? Um, it, it, Give me the opportunity to repent of that. Uh, At least explain to me what has happened. Uh, What what am I doing? We want to put this out. The easiest time to put this thing out is at that juncture. Right then and there. It can usually be easily handled. And that's what we see Abram doing. Uh, He's handling this strife. And this morning I want to pick up right there and I want to take this farther. Last week I mentioned how wise Abram was in the way he dealt with Lot. Um, Abram doesn't allow things to fester. I mean, he realizes that if things get out of hand very quickly, there's going to be tension uh, between himself and Lot. And really, we don't know. Uh, maybe some tension has already began to arise between those two. We 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 don't know. But what we do know. Is Abram is very diligent in putting it to rest. And one of the reasons why we want to do this as quickly as we can is because I am always amazed at how quickly strife can spread. It's like wildfire. You know, I was I was thinking of an illustration for it, and we've got these wildfires all over the place, so significant. And they, you know, when the ground is dry and the trees are dry. Uh, That wildfire just can spread in an amazing speed, and especially when it's driven by a little bit of wind. Strife has its way of finding the wind. Uh, And off it'll go, and just like a wildfire, the aftermath, the damage, the destruction is horrible. It can take a long time to rebuild. And it's messy work rebuilding. It's always a messy job. Think of the mess of uh, water-soaked ashes. You know, when you get in there and you start cleaning that up, you're going to come out looking like a mess. And that's the way it is. So the first point I want to make this morning is that Abram jumps in and settles this issue really before friction becomes a wedge. Before friction becomes a wedge. And that's the first point I want to make is that we handle this friction... Before it becomes a wedge. Look at verse 8 with me. You know, look at Abram's words there. He goes to Lot and he says, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. So Abram is caught wind of the friction. You know, he's sending Lot a text message Hey, um, is there any friction between us? Well, he already knows that there's friction between his herdsmen and And Lot's herdsmen, And he's settling the matter before it becomes a wedge. Now, I think all of us can appreciate the blessing here. I mean, I think if if you're like me, as you think along these lines, it's not hard for you to think of an example of this kind of thing, maybe in your family, in your social sphere, or maybe in, um, you know, wherever it might be, in your extended family, of where there's individuals that didn't handle this whenever it was simply strife but allowed it to become a wedge. And now it's this, it's this, it's this wedge that's between the individuals who otherwise is, is between brothers and sisters or brothers and brothers or sisters and sisters or whoever. And it's this wedge and it's existed forever. And the sad part is that in many cases that wedge never gets removed. And the sad part is Uh, individuals who should have walked in harmony for all of these years together uh, walked at odds with each other. Listen, this is the way of the world. We should expect to find that in the world. This is not the way of the church. It's not the way of the church. This is not the way of the church. This kind of thing deeply grieves our Lord. It deeply grieves Him. There's so many verses I could point to on this one. But I, I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm only gonna offer one because on Wednesday nights for the month of September we're gonna be talking about this kind of thing. I'll just leave you with Matthew five verses twenty three and twenty four where Jesus says, "If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift." How important is this to Jesus? He, Listen. Worship's pretty important to the Lord. When He delivers Israel out of Egypt, the first thing He does out in the desert is He assembles His people for worship. That's the first order of business. Worship is very important, but yet these wedges, these strife. He says, "Listen, yeah, leave the worship be for a minute. Go take care of the issue. Come back in worship." There we see when we allow friction between us, we're on our way to allowing a wedge to come between us and wedges, they grieve our Lord. They, they deeply grieve our Lord. So handle friction before it becomes a wedge. Now, one of the reasons we don't handle friction is due to the cost. You know, last week I began to point out Abram's selflessness. And r- listen carefully to that word. Not self-ish. Selflessness. I pointed to Abram's selflessness. Remember how he handles the situation. If you look at verse nine, he says to Lot, "Is not the whole land before you?" Now realizing he's realizing that the land can't support them together, and he says to Lot, "Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me." If you take the left hand, I'll take the right. If you take the right hand, I'll take the left. And notice I pointed this out last week. What's Abram doing? He's the senior. I mean, it really is his right to take the choice. He's the one that's been called by God. But we see the selflessness in Abram where he says, Hey, Lot, listen, the whole land's before it. You know, take your choice. He gives Lot first dibs on this piece of land. And I want to point out to the fact that this comes at a great cost to Abram. Does he have the right to take the best choice of land? I think he does. But he doesn't, he, he, he ignores that right. We hear people talking today, they have this right. I've got this right. I've got this right. And it has a way of trumping the benefit of everyone who's around them. Abram is not acting that way. Um, Abram says, Lot, choose. Choose which way you'll go. And, And this comes at a great cost because Abram has more livestock than Lot does. Abram has more servants than Lot does. Abram needs more resources than Lot does. And Lot, with the lesser, runs off with the choicest piece of land. Now, what's the message here? Is it, is it be a nice guy? We title this sermon "Be a Nice Guy." Could probably get a lot of amens on that. Who would who would disagree with that? You know, I mean, what what kind of religion would say no? I don't no. Don't be a nice guy. That's sacrilege. Be a scoundrel. You know, um, who would disagree with being a nice guy? Is that the message? I mean. Or be sacrificial, be sacrificial. Who would disagree with that? That's admired by everyone in the world, is it not? We might not care to do it, but we admire it in others, right? Or be selfless. I mean, you'll see that on, you'll see documentaries of people who are sacrificial and selfless. You'll see that from time to time, it's admired by everybody. Well, these are all admirable things, but I don't believe that's the central message here at all, actually. I don't believe it's the central message. But that having been said, it is key to handling strife. Selflessness is key to handling strife. Sacrificial living is key to handling strife. Because what, what keeps, most of the time, what keeps strife from being handled, what keeps the wedge from being dealt with is pride, isn't it? I don't want to admit any wrong. I don't want to admit that it was me. I don't want to admit that that I'm at fault here. And I don't want to forgive you either. And that's the message. And if you listen to proud and selfish people, you'll hear them maintain those wedges. You see, you've got to maintain them wedges. You know, they're like the flowers. You've got to water them. You got to put them out in the sun and you got to pull them out. If it's going to be a frost, you got to cover them up or you got to bring them inside. You got to take care of these things if you want these things to, to maintain. You got to work at this. This is something you, you actually have to work doing, is maintaining these wedges. And the language that you'll hear folks use is self righteous and self justifying language. Well, I know it's a little bit at fault, but there's always that conjunction. And the conjunction erases everything that's been said prior to the conjunction. Well, I know I was a little bit at fault, but here's all the reasons I'm really not at fault. What kind of of repentance is that? That's what old Spurgeon used to say. That's a repentance that needs repented of. Isn't it? And we can find ourselves doing this, can't we? We can hear ourselves doing this. Maybe we're... We have such restraint that we wouldn't speak these things, but what goes on in the heart? We think it in our hearts. But it's just as loud to the Lord if it's going on in the heart as it is if it's going out of the yapper, isn't it? He hears it all. He hears it all. Now, if at this juncture I say, okay, look, Look at Abraham. He's selfless. He's sacrificial. Therefore, go and be selfless. Go and be sacrificial. I would submit to you I've not preached this text. And I would submit to you that I have not engaged in gospel preaching this morning. I would submit to you that I've just merely preached a message that any Muslim would agree with, that any Jew would agree with, that any anything that's anything would agree with and say amen to if I closed in prayer right now. They would all agree with it because it's not a gospel message. It's only as you bring the gospel in that everyone starts to get in an uproar. But we didn't come here to hear a pep talk, did we? You can hear plenty of those. You don't need to get up on Sunday morning to hear a pep talk. You can. There's, there's, there's motivational speakers that are far better at this than me. Go listen to them if that's what you want. But that's not what you want, is it? We need empowerment to be selfless. We can't do it, can we? We need empowerment to be sacrificial. We need the gospel. Let me put it this way Jesus is the perfect example of selflessness and sacrificial living, isn't he? He's the perfect example. And when we're being selfless and sacrificial, we're acting just like Jesus. We look like Jesus when we're being selfless and sacrificial. When we're being proud and selfish, we look like somebody else who isn't Jesus. Okay, what transforms us into the likeness of Jesus is the message. Try harder. Well, we do have to put forth effort. But is the message try harder? Well, if it means try harder in your own strength and resources, then no. And too often sermons like this go wrong because you're left like you know that's right, man. Man, Pastor, you really convicted me. I'm not I'm selfish. And I'm I'm just I'm you know, I got to man, I got to dig down deep and I got to try harder. You know, I know I know there's a a selfless Rick in here somewhere and there's a sacrificial Rick in here and I got to find him and and no. There isn't a selfless Rick in there. He's not sacrificial. Ask my wife, she'll tell you all about the Rick that's in there. He's not selfless. He's selfish he's not sacrificial he wants his way we got to look outside of ourselves we got to look outside of ourselves okay what transforms us into the likeness of jesus well trusting in ourselves points us away from him so what makes us like him well what motivated abraham let's look at that let's start with that look with me at verse 14 After Lot had separated from Abram, the Lord said to him, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I pointed out last week that the Lord tells Abram to lift up his eyes. You remember I made that, you know, Lot lifts up his eyes. And then the Lord comes to Abram and says, Abram, you lift up your eyes. Well, what does the Lord want Abram to see? Well, he tells him to look at the land. And in verse 17, the Lord tells Abram to walk through it. In other words, Abram, look at the land. Look at the land. Don't just look at it. Take a stroll through it. Walk through it. Inspect it. Set your gaze upon it. Set your feet upon it. And then he reiterates in verse 17, for I will give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. Now, there's a problem. Some of you who know the story might know what I mean by the problem. There's a problem here. What's the problem? Well, if you're familiar with the story, you know where I'm going. <laughs> the problem is Abram never receives this land. Does he? No. In fact, the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Stephen recounts the history. In his famous speech, in fact, why don't you why don't you go there for a minute? We're going to look at a couple of New Testament passages. Go to Acts chapter 7. As you're finding the place, I'll read a couple of verses of context. Stephen, in his speech, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Verse 4, then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Now look at verse 5. Yet he gave him no what? He gave him no inheritance. Not even a foot's length. You see that? I don't know how big Abraham's feet were. What's that got to do with anything? Not a whole lot, but I thought it was cute. And <laughs> Maybe he had these really big feet. If he had really big feet, he didn't even get this much of land. Surely his feet weren't any bigger and I've got my hands spread apart. Verse 5, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now what do we make of this? I mean, because here's the problem. God is steadfast. We we can't go there that God just wasn't faithful to Abram. That's not even a possibility because God is completely faithful 100% of the time. He has a perfect track record. He is perfectly faithful. So that option is not even open to us. But we have an inspired commentary on Genesis 13. We're already looking at it. The inspired commentary on Genesis 13 is the New Testament. And if you'll turn to Hebrews 11, which we looked at earlier, and beginning with verse 8, we begin to see the key to all of this. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. You see that? That he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9 By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. "'living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, "'heirs with him of the same promise. "'For he was looking forward to the city "'that has foundations, "'whose designer and builder is God. "'By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive "'even when she was past the age "'since she considered him faithful who had promised. "'Verse 12, therefore, from one man "'and him as good as dead were born descendants "'as many as the stars of heaven, "'as many as the innumerable grains of the sand.' by the seashore. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. You see, they didn't get them. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone, they would have had opportunity to return. Look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for He has prepared for them a city. Now, what are we to make of this? Abram promised land. Right? Over and over again. He's promised land back in chapter 12. He's promised land. He's invited to walk through it, to inspect it, to gaze it. Yet he never inherits it. He's a sojourner. He walks in it as a stranger and alien. Both Stephen and the author of Hebrews tells us that Abram did not receive the things promised. In fact, the rest of the story of Genesis as we go through, we're going to see that that is indeed the case. It's quite clear that that's the case. But notice what the author of Hebrew adds. He says, they died in faith, not having received the things promised. They died in faith. They saw them from afar. They realized something. They realized they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, this is the key to living selfless, and sacrificially. This is the very key. It's in what he realized by faith. He realized that he was about a stranger in exile here. In other words, he realized he's not yet home. He realized he's not yet home. He realized that the Lord was promising a better country. That is a heavenly one. What does Abram realize? Abram realized that there's going to be a resurrection. He realizes there's going to be a resurrection. He believed the promise awaited fulfillment in the next life. Abram knew what the Lord promised. Abram knew that the promise could not fail. Abram knew that the fulfillment of the promise The true fulfillment of the promise would not come in this life. Therefore, he looked forward to a heavenly fulfillment. He looked forward to a heavenly fulfillment. That is, he looked forward to the resurrection. Now, how do I conclude this? Because the Lord promised Abraham a particular piece of property. He invited Abram to walk it off, to stroll through it, to bask in it. It's yours, Abram. It's yours. How is Abram to receive it? Abram realized how He was to receive it. He's to receive it the same way that He's walking around in it. He's going to receive it as a human being receives land. He's going to walk around on it with those feet. I don't know how big they were, but He's going to use them to walk around on it. And He's going to smell the fragrance of the air with a human nose. You know, when we were down in Jasper, you know, I shared with you how much I like Jasper. Boy, do I like Jasper. Well, up in the mountains in Jasper, there's a certain fragrance. I don't smell very well anymore. As I get older, I'm not smelling very good at all. But I could smell that. There was this. There was this fragrance, you know, up in the mountains. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. Abram would have smelled the land. He would have walked on the land. My point. He would have saw it. He smells with a human nose. He. He sees with a human eye, walks with human feet. A lot of the times we look at these Old Testament believers and we think, well, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't know anything. I don't think that's true. In fact, I am convinced and been convinced for years they knew a lot more than we give them credit for because everything the Lord tells them hasn't been written down. What's written down is very selective. And it's very specific. I've always been convinced they knew more than we give them credit for. For Abram to have believed, let's do the alternative. For Abram to believe, okay, the way the world would believe this, okay, Lord's promising him land. Currently, it's occupied by the Canaanites. Well, Lord must be planning on dealing with the Canaanites, and then he's going to move me in, and I'm going to spend my golden years uh, in this promised land. Well, what kind of promise is that? That's a pretty good promise, but how long, would Abram, how long would Abram get to enjoy that? A few more decades? It's not very long. But he's told that he's going to have this inheritance forever. Not a couple of decades. No, the promise is much greater than that. No, Abram, in the next life you're going to get this. Abram, I want to show you something. This is yours. Walk around on it. And we're going to see this in the next chapter. We're really going to see this in the next chapter. But Abram's walking around. Take a look, Abram. Walk around. Inspect it. Gaze upon it. It's all yours, Abram. It's all yours. It's going to be yours forever. Now, how does this enable Abram to be selfless and sacrificial with Lot? Oh, it has everything to do with it. It has everything to do with it. Abram realized the promise awaited the next life. He realized that he's just a stranger here. He's just an exile. He realized that God had great things for him, and that enabled Abram to hold on quite loosely to the things in this life. He's able to hold on really loosely to everything. God's blessed him, and he's got a lot of stuff, but he's able to hold on very loosely to it. Why because he realized there's so much more in the next life. That this, this isn't, this, this is just temporary. Why, why get stingy with this stuff? Why get stingy with everything? It's, it's just, this, isn't, this, isn't the, this isn't the deal here. This isn't the big picture here. If Abram had no faith, he wouldn't let Lot take that better choice. He would go get the better choice because he would believe that he needs to get as much as he can now because you only go around once. And that's it. And if you don't get it now, you're never going to get it. So you better take care of number one. And that's the message of the world. That creates a selfish nature. It's created by a selfish nature. Let me put it that way. It's a selfish nature that thinks that way. But no, Abram's able to let go of things. He doesn't believe that his treasures are really, are really here. He believes his treasures. Listen. I have already walked this land. This land's all mine. Not in this life. Right now I'm a stranger. I don't belong here. I belong in a better place. I belong in a place where God has prepared for me. Place has foundations. He's builder and designer. It's God. And if we believe something so much better awaits us, we're going to hold on loosely to our stuff as well. We're going to do the same thing. And that will create a selfless nature and a sacrificial one. Let's not fuss over all the toys. Listen, this, 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 you take yours, you take it. Take, you can choose whatever you want. And I know, I mean, they're mine. I have a right to them. You know, I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. I have a right to do this. But it's no big deal. See the concern is for the other guy. Why? Because there's so much. There's so much that awaits us. This isn't the sum total. In fact, this is just a little taste of what awaits us. You want a, a little piece of the taste? Go ahead and take it. Candlish. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing. Candlish's commentary is on Genesis. Spurgeon said Candlish's commentary should be in every biblical library. I'm happy to say it's in mine. Candlish was an old Scottish pastor. Robert Candlish, he he writes concerning these things, quote, on these grounds we are surely justified in regarding the communication made to Abram that after his separation from Lot as conveying to him personally the promise of an eternal inheritance. The promise of an eternal inheritance. What's that mean? It means everything that I just got done saying. Abram is not getting this land to live in for a couple of decades. This inheritance is eternal. It's eternal. And this is the game changer. So, how do we find strength and empowerment to be selfless and sacrificial? By faith. Faith in what? Faith in the promises of eternal life in Christ Jesus faith in a city whose builder is God, faith in the fact that this is not our home, faith in the fact that great riches await us in the next life. It helps us to hold on loosely to the things we have now. And in his comments, Robert Candlish, he offers this suggestion. I was telling Jim, this is what I was telling you about last week. Uh, this is a real gem. Um, I got this from Robert Candlish. He suggests, he's not dogmatic about it, but he makes this suggestion that the ground that Abram is invited to walk on, the land of Canaan, he suggests that that is the very ground that Abram will walk on in the new earth. Here's what he writes. Quote, Is it by inference that this is to be understood as indicating in a figure, the heavenly country, of which the land of Canaan is the type? Or... Are we to take the words quite literally and to believe that this very land may actually turn out to be, in part at least, that better country itself? Now, did did you get that? They wrote a little differently 150, 200 years ago. But he's asking the question, is, is Canaan merely a type of heaven? Is the promised land merely a type of heaven? Or is it literally, at least in part, the very land itself? Now this caused my mind just to go berserk. I'm reading this last week and my mind was going berserk. I won't share with you. I won't detain you that long because quite frankly, a lot of the things, I'm I'm still trying to sort them out and place them under the scrutiny of the rest of Scripture. So I, I wouldn't want to share them until I've done that. I certainly wouldn't want them on tape going out on the internet everywhere. But let me let me share with you one. Let me just share with you one. I could not help but to wonder how much continuity exists between the earth that we know and the new earth that Jesus will bring in in His consummation. I think there's going to be a lot of continuity. How much? I don't know. None of us know. But don't you feel the excitement? Don't you want to find out? And it's that excitement where, you know, when Paul says, hey, listen, put your mind on the things above. That's part of of this selfless nature. That's part of sacrificial living, is always having your mind on what's next to come that anticipates you see forget about being stingy with your toys when you're thinking about what jesus is going to bring in in the new heavens and the new earth and the last thing you want is a wedge come on now it's not a time for a wedge and you want everybody to enjoy it it's a complete game changer in conclusion abram deals with strife before it becomes a wedge he does it with admirable selflessness and sacrifice and we this morning have gone to the source, haven't we? What is the source of that sacrificial life and that selfless life that Abram exhibits? What's the source of it? It's the promises of God, all of which find their yes in Jesus, don't they? Jesus is the fountain. He's the source. That'll make us willing to give up our seat to our neighbor. It'll make us willing to take the short end of the stick for our brothers. It'll enable us to settle strife and friction before it develops. It'll enable us to give up our rights. Our precious rights that you know we think we should observe even if it's harmful to those who are around us. Now we're going to get rid of that. No, come on. We're strangers here. Jesus, His eyes were always on the Father, weren't they? His eyes were always upon the promises. He fills them. He fulfills them. He makes them possible. He dies on the cross so that we can have them. For the same principle worked in His heart. This morning, on my back porch, on the deck, this verse hit me so hard. From Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. It was for the joy that was set before him. He was looking forward to the he was looking forward to the end. And he was willing to endure the cross to take away the sins of you and I. And there he is, as the first fruits, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We praise you for the gospel which empowers us to be selfless and sacrificial in our living, which empowers us to deal with strife and enables us to have nothing to do with any wedge that might be between us and someone else for as best as we are able. Father, give us the grace to destroy those wedges. Oh, Father, we thank you and praise you, Father, for the message that you have given us here in Genesis 13, for we see the gospel and we see its empowerment. Oh, Father, do these great things to us and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.